The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art, I'm Ben Luke. This week, Viking Age treasures, what the medieval gold, silver, textiles and even dirt recently found in Scotland can tell us about the Viking Age, its people, its art and its international networks. I talked to Martin Goldberg, a curator at National Museums Scotland, about a new exhibition of the Viking Age objects found in the Galloway Hoard in 2014, which have just gone on view in Edinburgh. Also this week, six proposals for the highest profile public art commission in London, the fourth plinth in Trafalgar Square, have gone on view at London's National Gallery. I discussed the proposals and the current climate for public art in London with Echo Eschen and Justine Simons. And in this episode's Work of the Week, I talk about Nike Air Force Ones, the design that changed the face of global sneaker culture with Lagaya Salazar of London's Design Museum. Before all that, a reminder about a forthcoming event from the art newspaper. In a discussion on the 3rd of June to coincide with the first edition of London Gallery Weekend, we're exploring the impact of the pandemic on London's galleries and the steps they're taking to survive. Join our moderator, Louisa Buck, with three gallerists, Sadie Coles of Sadie Coles HQ, Bommy Odofanade of Goodman Gallery and Jeremy Epstein of Adele Asante for What Now? How London's Gallery Scene Can Survive in a Post-Pandemic World. That's next Thursday, the 3rd of June at 4pm BS. 11am EST on Zoom. Register for the event at theartnewspaper.com and we'll be discussing London Gallery Weekend on next week's podcast. Now, it's the sort of thing you might see on the award-winning BBC comedy Detectorists, but it really happened. In 2014, a treasure seeker in southwest Scotland came across the richest and most varied group of Viking Age objects ever found in Britain or Ireland. The Galloway Hoard, as it's known, had been buried for more than a thousand years before it was discovered and contains an extraordinary breadth of objects buried in two distinct layers, from silver bullion and an Anglo-Saxon cross, silver arm rings, a small wooden box with three gold items and a silver gilt vessel wrapped in layers of textile and packed full of varied objects. So what does the Galloway Hoard tell us? I spoke to Martin Goldberg, a curator at National Museum Scotland, who organised a new show all about the Hoard. Martin, tell me something about the culture of the area where this Hoard was found in medieval Scotland. So Galloway is a region of southwest Scotland that has a long coast that connects it to the Irish Sea. But in the 9th century AD, it would have been part of the Anglo-Saxon kingdom of Northumbria. And so it was referred to in contemporary Irish sources as the Saxon coast. It has a linguistic background that is, is very complicated because um, there is a sort of Britonic, what has become modern Welsh linguistic background. Then you've got um, sort of Anglo-Saxon political control. And at the period that the Horde is buried, you're just beginning to get another linguistic layer as people who are of Scandinavian origin, but have been living in this Irish sea region for at least a a century, are beginning to settle and occupy particular areas within Galloway. And so it's it's quite a complicated part of the country. Um, And the Horde seems to be buried at precisely this time of linguistic and social change. And 
that is a very interesting background and it's also reflected within the material that's in the hoard. And what do we know specifically about the people that would have left this hoard? Is there anything that you can glean from the objects that were found? This is one of the amazing things about the Galloway Hoard is it seems like we have the indication of four different people that were involved, at least in ownership of the bullion, the silver bullion that is buried in various parcels within the hoard. So there is a a top layer of the hoard, which is 22 arm rings and ingots. And then beneath that is a much richer layer. So the top layer is almost like a decoy. And the bullion underneath has four arm rings in it that are inscribed with Anglo-Saxon runes. And the inscriptions are contractions or abbreviations of name elements. And so there are four of them. And then each one is folded in a particular way that links it to all the other arm rings in the lower bullion. There are four groups of arm rings that are all folded like one of their runic counterparts. And so it looks like there are four parcels within uh, this lower bullion deposit. And it's just really quite rare that you get that sort of evidence, especially with the linguistic element of these uh, Old English names uh, or fragments of names. Would that have meant that it was four families or four clans? What kind of inf- what, what kind of um, structures within the society would suggest why four people would separately have their belongings buried together? Well, traditionally, or uh, within historical uh, sources, the war leader is often referred to as, as giving out silver. You know, so they they have to acquire that silver through probably mostly violence. But once they have that silver, they need to to pay their retinue to to build up their support base. The four groupings within uh, the bullion in the lower deposit of the Galloway Hoard looks like um, it's uneven. You know, that it's not like there are four four quarters, there is one arm ring that is much larger than the rest, twice as heavy, and it has the longest inscription on it. There is another bundle of arm rings that are much more elaborately decorated, and they are, as they would have been worn, they're still in their sort of circular form. And those four have been bound together, almost like a contract. And so you're seeing that signature of of four again, But there is one, again, in that group that is twice as large as the rest. So there is certainly somebody who thinks they're more important than the others. How intriguing. And of course, one of the really fascinating aspects is that that you've got material here. You've got textile, which is so rare for something this old, right? Yes. The textile is a really rare survival. And that in it, it makes it much more valuable, you know, for that rarity. And it presents opportunities uh, that, that the gold and the silver doesn't. We can be dazzled by some of those items, but um, the textiles hold great potential for future research. And that's what we're going to be moving on to in the next three years. We have a, an AHRC funded research programme. So while the exhibition is on display and on tour in Kakubri and in Aberdeen, we'll be focusing on the textile remains. Most of them are too fragile to be on display, um, but we'll be doing conservation work, examining them, identifying them and reconnecting them with what we think is the structure of the deposit. 
Do you know why they would have buried it? I mean, in my imagination, I'm thinking it was fleeing and keeping them safe because that's that's a sort of stereotypical image of why these things were done. But but can you can you glean anything more than that, for instance? Well, that that is the universal story. You know, that's something that we can all connect with. And it is the standard explanation for why hordes are buried. But if we only had that one story, we wouldn't have anything new or interesting to say. So the fact that this has this really careful structuring, different groups of material, different layers, different parcels, and particularly it's the vessel and the contents of the vessel in the hoard that make it substantially different to normal Viking Age hordes. So all of the silver bullion is outside of this vessel and the contents of the vessel look like they have been brought together with a different set of motivations, different values. So this isn't wealth as we would think of it in the sort of economic terms, which we do with the silver bullion and which undoubtedly was used Um, as economic wealth in in the 9th century AD. The contents of the vessel, a lot of them are not intrinsically valuable. There are glass beads that are very well-worn. There are things that are broken but have been preserved, encased in, in silver, almost like relics. There are objects that look substantially older and that we can, or we're beginning to demonstrate, were substantially older. And so the motivation for that collection Uh, might be something completely different. It might be to do with genealogy, family, heirlooms, things that have been inherited, things that were brought together over several centuries. And that's where the value again of the textiles and the organic material will come in because we can perform scientific analysis on those. We can look for for lost colour, dye analysis, But in particular, we can do a very fine-grained radiocarbon dating programme and try and um, reconstruct how this collection came together potentially over several centuries. And that vessel in itself is really fascinating, isn't it? And uh, wonderfully, you've been able to do a 3D printed version of it. And, and, And the reason that you needed to do that and you couldn't look at the actual designs on the thing itself were because it's covered in textile initially. So say something about about that. I mean, how new technologies have really helped you to, on the one hand, visualize this object, but also to to understand it better. Well, the way that these technologies are now being used just provides incredible opportunities to show the public what it looked like, to show people what the vessel is underneath those very fragile and valuable textile wrappings. And so we have the opportunity to do more research on those now because of the the opportunity that the 3D model as as a digital model provides, but then also the 3D print that we've managed to do is in the exhibition and can show people exactly what this vessel was. And it's revealed a a complete surprise, uh, even to me. Uh, We thought that this vessel would be very like two others that have been used as Viking Age hoard containers, but the digital model immediately revealed to us something completely different. There is uh, imagery on there that, that suggests to us that it comes from thousands of miles away in Central Asia. And it's Central Asia. I mean, when you say Central Asia, it's Persia, right? Is that is it right? There's animal designs on there that suggest Persia. There are leopards and tigers, so spotted and striped. 
but there there is a central icon which is a, a Zoroastrian fire altar. So the two the two other vessels uh, that were used as Vikingage um, hoard containers have Christian imagery on them and were probably made in the Carolingian Empire, Western Europe in the ninth century AD. This vessel just is fundamentally different. It's it's admittedly very similar in size and shape, but the decoration is non-Christian, Zoroastrian fire altar. And the Zoroastrian uh, religion was the sort of state religion of another empire far to the east, the Sasanian Empire. And we see Zoroastrian fire altars on Sasanian coinage and Sasanian metalwork uh, influenced metalwork beyond it in Central Asia, beyond the bounds of, of, of its empire. Tell us about the trade links then and, and the international networks that were connected to this part of Scotland, because it, it gen- genuinely was international, wasn't it? Yes, I mean, the, the, the hoard is a surprise. You know, I, I can't emphasise that enough. But it fits into this, this big picture of the Viking Age and connections through the Baltic through the Russian river systems and down river to the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea. And then you're connected into what are known as the Silk Roads, the the trade routes that link Byzantium and China and the flow of of silk in particular is what typifies those trade routes. The Sasanian Empire in what was ancient Persia and modern day Iran is uh, trying to control those silk roads at various points. Viking traders are trying to engage with those trade routes. And so you get fur and amber going in one direction and silver coming back in the other direction. And presumably the silks in the hoard are connected to similar mechanisms of trade and exchange. But the vessel itself really is a surprise. There isn't anything like this uh, found in Britain. Um, it's it's a real anomaly, but it it, it takes us out into that, that world in a, a very new and, and visually striking way. Do you know whether it was brought back from Central Asia by somebody who lived in that territory or brought by a merchant? Or do you have any indication of the kind of person that, that would have brought it to this area of Scotland? No, we, we don't know the answers to those types of questions yet. And we may never know the answers to those type of questions, but we can fit it into a, a, what is a growing body of research that starts with the hoard itself, but then makes connections to collections in other museums, other hoards that have been discovered. But the thing about the Galloway hoard is you might find a parallel here and a connection there, but there is nothing quite like this collection that is all together in the one place. And so those bits of evidence are what we're going to pursue and and follow over the next few years. The vessel and the the reveal of the vessel is is quite literally hot off the press. The the 3D uh, print that we have installed in the exhibition is is brand new. Um, It arrived yesterday. And so the research that we have planned over the next three years will begin to answer or try to answer exactly the types of questions that you've just posed. So there are two items in, in the vessel which are one would expect would not seem to be very valuable, but they are tremendously valuable to you as a curator, right? Which are these dirt balls. Tell us about those. Yes. Well, the dirt balls are on display for the first time. They were found in the very lowest part of the vessel. And 
the lower you get within the contents of the vessel, and it's it's quite a small vessel, it's only 10 centimetres high and 10 centimetres wide, but there are 25 objects of incredible range of material and, and as I said, different motivations and values. The dirt balls are with the silk and the gold and the most exotic material. And so you have to think that, why were those there? What is that dirt? They've been carefully formed, they've been rolled. You can almost imagine the hands that, that rolled them together. But it's only the sealed environment of the vessel that has protected them. If they had ever gotten wet, they would have dissolved. If they had ever dried out, they would have turned to dust. And so it's the particular preservation conditions within the vessel that, that means we have the, the opportunity now to study them. And I was aware of a phenomenon uh, which is contact relics where things that have come in touch with the sacred in the ancient world were themselves thought to be sacred and carried the essence of sacred places and sacred things with them. And so one of the, the simplest mementos to bring back from pilgrimage um, was earth that had been rolled in the dust of a, a shrine or in the presence of a reliquary. And that could be brought back from your pilgrimage, you know, places that it might have taken you a year to travel to, um, a, a place that you devoted a portion of your life to go and, and visit. And these uh, earth relics are historically known, but, but very rarely survive. And so the only comparisons uh, that, that initially I was aware of were in, again, the Vatican collection in Rome, and it seems like the papal collection has, has preserved these and the earth relics that they were collecting are in a particular period between 650 and 900. And they were interested in the sites um, in the Holy Land, Bethlehem, the banks of the River Jordan, the Temple of the Holy Sepulchre, places that were associated with the, the life and death of Christ. And so it's a, a fascinating hypothesis to pursue. Um, can we use scientific analysis? Can we figure out where the dirt balls in the Galloway hoard came from? We have some preliminary analysis, which has already shown that they are full of microscopic traces of gold and bone and organic materials. And so particularly the gold tells us that they were rolled in an environment that contained gilded or golden objects. So they weren't rolled just anywhere. And of course, reliquary shrines have gilded objects in them. So it's this tantalizing glimpse of what we may learn and what we hope to learn more about in the future. While we're on the subject of Christianity, we haven't talked about one of the absolute landmark objects in the Horde, which is this cross, this beautiful cross. Tell us about that. So that was up in the, the top layer of the deposit with 22 pieces of um, silver bullion, but it immediately flags up that unexpected element. Here's something different and unusual. It's a Christian object, so it's not something you would normally expect to find in the stereotype of a Viking horde. Um, and I think we're well beyond that stereotype now in, in the analysis that we've done. It's been very recently worn because it still has this incredibly fine spiral chain that would have suspended it from the neck and, and the cross would have been worn on the chest. And that chain is, is still wrapped around it. You can almost imagine the hands 
uh, wrapping it around to, to, to place it in the ground. The decoration of it is a late Anglo-Saxon style of decoration, probably 9th century AD. Um, and it has four beautiful symbols um, of the gospel evangelists, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. And those are inlaid with niello and uh, particular elements of the design are picked out with gold foil. And it's just a really striking example, not only of the wealth of Anglo-Saxon metalwork that is in this collection, which again takes us away from our stereotype of a Viking Age hoard, but also the, the cleaning of the cross is the best representation that we have of the, the process that we've been going through, where our specialist conservator, Dr. Mary Davis, with great patience and care has been slowly revealing the, the, the beautiful workmanship of these objects and, and how they were created in the past. Mary's spoken about how the process of conserving them isn't a matter of just revealing these beautiful things from the dirt, as it were, but the dirt itself is important, not just the dirt balls that were in the vessel, but the conditions in which these objects were were buried. Tell us about that. And if you wouldn't mind widening that out into what do you know about the territory? You know, are there other settlements there? Are there more things to be discovered around where the hoard was found? to deal with the last bit first there there was certainly more to discover so there was a, a preliminary excavation that was done when the hoard was discovered and archaeological features were mapped um, in the immediate vicinity and it looks like the hoard itself was buried um, within the, um, a structure uh, probably a timber structure and so there is certainly a site there uh, to be investigated and that will provide um, a key source of information for understanding the immediate context of the burial and, and one of our key stages in our layered information of how we understand this hoard. But if we're taking it down to the sort of forensic detail that, that Mary is working at, whenever she is cleaning anything, working on the material, she's always doing um, analysis beforehand to figure out uh, what we can learn. So corrosion can, can preserve organic materials. That's on a, on a larger scale. That's how a lot of the textiles within the vessel have survived is through uh, differential corrosion of the, the silver leaching out copper. But it's fibres can be trapped in there, pollen, other uh, organic materials can be trapped. And these can provide all sorts of information now as, as scientific analysis and techniques improve. And it's quite often um, other disciplines develop these techniques uh, for other reasons. And archaeologists then learn to apply them to the material from the past. We, we benefit from uh, quite often cutting edge technologies that are being developed elsewhere. And so conservation science, working with Mary, it allows us to, to do things in tandem. She's producing incredibly detailed information as she's working on objects. It sets up questions for me to ask her, just as you're asking me. And we build up the information and we set out our research agenda and we, we try and pick out as many lines and avenues of research as we can. There are many questions that we have so far, and the exhibition is really just presenting the story so far. We had to uh, strike a balance between delivering the, the, the real visual impact of, of all of this beautiful material um, and 
focusing for the next year at least on on the textiles while the other objects are on display and going on tour to to Kakubri and Aberdeen. Lastly, I wanted to ask about what it's like in terms of the wider culture that you're studying. In a sense, are you retrieving a culture from a kind of stereotypical image of warriors and violence and finding a kind of a picture of, of, a, of a very sophisticated culture? Is that, is that almost like the aim of this, of, of what you do? The aim of what we do is ultimately we would like to get to the people you know, if that's what we're interested in, that's what the public are interested in, is connecting with people in the past, understanding their lives, understanding their motivations, and, and connecting with it, you know, quite often in, a, in an emotional way. We deal with objects, uh, mostly. The, the hoard is great because it has fragments of names and, and other evidence that we can bring to bear. The textiles, as a, as a very rare survival you know, get you to humanity in a different way. It goes back to my previous comment. If we only had one story to tell about why people buried hordes, we would have nothing new or interesting to say. And so it's the it's the range of material in this hoard that is allowing us to create a new picture of that period. It's not that we're sort of taking away the stereotype the stereotype is there for a reason it's called the viking age it's a it's an understood phenomenon there's there's several hundred years of development of our knowledge about that period but a horde of this significance and with this range of material just provides a whole new window into that that period Um, and not just around AD 900 when we think this hoard was buried, but because of the heirloom nature of the the contents of the vessel, we're potentially looking at ancient lives that that span several centuries before that. All of these objects look like they've gone through several hands. They have been inherited and ultimately somebody has treasured them and, and carefully wrapped them and carefully packed them inside this lidded vessel that has come from thousands of miles away and buried that with a host of of silver bullion that had contemporary economic value that was part of a society that is all about the exchange of silver and wealth. Um, And that's the sort of fundamental um, exchange mechanism of of what we know as the Viking Age. So it's it's going to open up um, a whole new chapter, I think, in the history of this period, particularly Scotland's history and its international connections at this point. It is an extraordinary discovery. Martin, thank you so much for telling us about it. Thank you for having me. Galloway Hoard Viking Age Treasure opens at the National Museum of Scotland in Edinburgh on the 29th of May and continues until the 12th of September. It will then tour to Kukubri Galleries near where the hoard was found in October and Aberdeen Art Gallery in July 2022. Coming up, we talk about Air Force One sneakers and six artists' proposals for the fourth plinth in London. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. 
For the first time since its creation in the wake of the French Revolution, the Musée du Louvre in Paris will be headed by a woman. As Vincent Noss writes, Laurence Descartes, the current president of the Musée d'Orsay and the Musée de l'Orangerie in the French capital, was appointed on Wednesday as the new president director of the Louvre by the French president Emmanuel Macron. Descartes started her career as a curator at the Musée d'Orsay in 1994, before taking charge in 2007 of Agence France Museum, the French government body responsible for delivering the Louvre Abu Dhabi. She then became the director of the Orangerie and the Musée d'Orsay in 2017, where she's emphasised the social role of the museum. According to a statement from the French Culture Ministry, Descartes' priorities at the Louvre will include fostering a dialogue between ancient art and the contemporary world and broadening the museum's audiences, with particular attention to young people. Gold rosary beads clutched by Mary Queen of Scots during her execution in 1587 were among a number of treasures stolen from Arundel Castle in West Sussex in the UK last week. As Kabir Jalla reports, when police arrived on the scene they discovered that around £1 million worth of artefacts had been stolen from display cases in an area usually open to the public. As well as the rosary beads, items taken included 16th century coronation cups given by Mary to the Earl Marshal of the time. Police are examining a car which was found abandoned and on fire in nearby Balton. To mark a year since the murder of George Floyd on the 25th of May, the art newspaper asked 22 American museums about the progress they've made in diversifying their staff, exhibition programmes, permanent collections and audiences over the past year. As Nancy Kenny writes, US art museums have faced greater pressure than ever before to root out racial injustice in their institutions, from a lack of diversity in their workforces and audiences to a long-standing canonical emphasis on white Western artists. Floyd's murder led many museums to issue declarations that black lives matter, inviting derision from those who found the words hollow. In the months that followed, numerous institutions drew up detailed plans to advance diversity and inclusion across their operations. The art newspaper survey is an attempt to study those responses. To read these stories and much more, visit theartnewspaper.com or download our app for iPhone and iPad, which you can get from the App Store. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Christie's presents two exciting additions to the summer auction calendar. Presented over two live auction sessions in London on the 7th of June, the Russian Art Sale offers a curated selection of paintings, objects and works on paper by leading artists and makers from the 18th to the 21st centuries, with stunning highlights such as Dmitry Levitsky's portrait of Emperor Paul I and a collection of Fabergé from the estate of Alexandra Anastasia, Duchess of Abercorn. Julian's Park and six private collections offers works of fine and decorative art from seven English country houses held over two sessions, a live auction in London on the 8th of June and an online sale open for bidding until the 15th of June. Browse stunning examples of impressionist and old master paintings, modern British art and English and European furniture, among other remarkable objects. Find out more on christies.com. Welcome back. A reminder that you can catch up on all the episodes of our sister podcast, A Brush With, featuring in-depth conversations with some of the great artists of our time, including Rashid Johnson, Talamadani and Michael Armitage. You can listen and subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you're listening now. And new episodes are coming in June.
Now, proposals by six global artists for the next two commissions to occupy the fourth plinth, the pedestal that over the last 20 years has hosted often controversial works of art in London's Trafalgar Square, were unveiled this week at the National Gallery in London. The new proposals vary hugely, from Bump Man for Trafalgar Square by Paloma Varga Weiss, a figure inspired by German folklore, to a huge rocket by Goshka Masuga, to Ibrahim Mahama's architectural structure with plants, based on a grain silo partially built by Eastern European architects in Mahama's home land Ghana in the early 1960s. The two winning commissions will be shown on the plinth in 2022 and 2024. I went to the National Gallery to talk first to Echo Eschen, chair of the fourth plinth commissioning group, and then to Justine Simons, London's deputy mayor for culture and the creative industries. Echo, we're with the six maquettes for the next fourth plinth commission. One of the things that's really striking to me is that we've got flights of imagination, we've got hard politics, we've got colonial history. It's a broad selection, so how on earth does one begin choosing two of them? To be honest, it's it's a long process that we go through of deliberation as uh, judges. Uh, We do that with a view to the opinions and the kind of uh, responses we get from the public. But we just look really hard at the work. Yeah, we've asked each artist to consider the same criteria in terms of looking at the role that their proposal can play in the conversation that London has with itself about the city, about who we are, about how we live. As you say, they've come at it from very different directions. But we try and get to the core of that and we try and think about which works speak most profoundly about the possibilities of standing on the plinth and speak most profoundly about the conversation they can have with the city and its people. Does it feel like a really apt moment to begin discussions about public monuments, about statues, given the sort of fairly aggressive stance that the government's taking? You know, the fourth plinth has always sat, I think, at this intersection of, you know, popularity and sometimes political comment and thought, in part, that's a lot to do with its location, that's a lot to do with its, you know, its place in Trafalgar Square, this kind of notion that of the plinth as potential and empty site. I think our position with it is that the fourth plinth as a programme is an ongoing conversation with the city about the role of art, but really also about the role of society. At times, those conversations become more heightened, as they have done over the past year. But the point about the project as a whole is that it continues to have its conversation through these different highs and lows and different periods of time. Like, these are artworks, I think, that are potentially enduring in that they can look beyond a moment. And actually, anyway, in practical terms, they do, because one of these works will go up on the plinth in 2024. So this is less about even the current political moment and more about the larger sense of arts relationship and arts conversation with the city and its people. One of the things, again, that strikes me is, is about the formal solution. So even independently of the subject matter, the artists have been really inventive in terms of how they're thinking about the form of the plinth. Because actually, weirdly, plinths are quite a difficult thing to display on, right? I mean, especially when you're a contemporary sculptor. Yeah. There's a double thing. There's the fact you have this platform, this plinth, like you say, which has formal strictures to it. it you know, it's got a finite dimensions to it. But then also there's the thing that it's in the middle of Trafalgar Square the most kind of populous public space, historical public space in London. And it's in front of the National Gallery, looking out to Parliament. There's a range of conversations that are taking place and the artists have to bear in mind. And I think the successful works on the plinth are able to synthesise all of those different settings and contexts 
and offer something that has clarity, imagination, ambition. And I think each of these in different ways has the capacity to do that. I was wondering about the history now of this series because it actually now does have quite a long history. Does that in any way affect the way that the judges think about it? Just the knowledge of how certain things perhaps may have worked better than others. So I suppose what I'm saying is, do you judge these utterly on their own merits or does the history of this commission come into play when you're thinking about who gets the, the, the final commissions? Inevitably as judges you learn some things about some of the practical aspects, some of the aesthetic aspects as well about what works, what doesn't necessarily work, what's more popular, what's less popular. You try and judge each work, obviously, on its own merits. But, like you say, the, the historical process means that, in a way, I think the task is to keep thinking and keep finding works that can speak and offer fresh new opportunities for conversation. And, you know, that presents its challenges the longer the programme goes on. And in fact, one of the things you see, in fact, or you'll see across the course of this, is that the programme's got more international as we've gone on because we're looking to find you know, artists from all, all around the world who can be part of that ongoing conversation. And I think that stretching out of our own ambition it speaks to both the success of the project and also you know, our search for continued conversation with the Fourth Plinth programme as a whole. That's wonderful. Thank you very much. Thank you. Justine, I just wanted to know about the discussions one has with artists in terms of developing these things, because obviously there is a practical element to it, as well as an imaginative element. But I noticed that Teresa Margolis has got a really radical proposal, which is fundamentally for a sculpture that disappears. So tell me about some of those discussions that, that you would have with artists in the making of these things. I mean, I think what is always extraordinary is that this is a rectangle right and you know over the two decades that I've been involved in this project the incredible diversity of ideas that artists have brought to bear for this fourth plinth is just awe-inspiring honestly you know and what we give to the artists is as much history and context um, and also we give them the kind of practicalities you know to think about the sight lines to think about the scale to think about materials but that's it really it's really up to them to bring their kind of imagination to to bear you know and what you often see then, I think, is that you see the artist riffing off the heritage of Trafalgar Square, I think. You can see the kind of bump man, a bronze piece there, with all his kind of vulnerabilities revealed on the outside, you know. And the artist is talking about how Trafalgar Square is all about the bronze stick of a lip, you know. And here we have a more truthful picture. But he's contemplative, he's looking to the kind of skies and he's okay with his bumps, right? <laughs> But then, for instance, I mean, Teresa Margolis's piece is re is, it's a really powerful piece because it's, it, it, these are the masks of trans people that she's been working with and will help her make the, the works. And London's weather will ultimately erode them and they will become a sort of an anti-monument, right? Yeah, I mean, this piece is really, really powerful. It's a monument to the trans community. There's a lot of conversation, isn't there, about how uh, we need to represent more of our stories and we need to represent more of society in our public realm. And, you know, this is literally a representation of the trans community because she's going to work with the London trans community. She'll cast their faces um, and they'll literally be able to see themselves in the artwork. You know, and it's based on, uh, you know, the kind of death wars that you saw in ancient times where people were sacrificed uh, for the gods. So you see these kind of walls of skulls, effectively. 
So it kind of has a nod to that. Um, and in Mexico, where she's from, there's been lots and lots of murders and deaths in the trans community. But what she talks about here is that this is a monument to the living. This is defiant. It's a wall of resistance, she says. Uh, you know, and this is all about the kind of living and vibrant and fantastic trans community in London. So, as you say, it's the kind of it's taking that kind of origin, but it's it's kind of subverting it into a really positive narrative for today. Talking about subversion, Samson Kambali has done a piece where. If you were to see it from afar, you might think it was a conventional statue, but it's far from it, isn't it? Yeah, that's right. I mean, it is, it's an extraordinary story of how a hat became a symbol of defiance and resistance against colonial rule. So what you'll see is two bronze statues, and one of the statues, John Chalembre, is outsized, supersized, wearing a hat. And you, as you say, you look at it and you think, that's a bronze statue. Uh, we we recognise that, there's lots of Victorian bronze statues around, but if you look a bit closer, you realise that it is this really powerful symbol of resistance and defiance, because at the time, in the 1900s, it was incredibly illegal for black people to wear a hat in the presence of white people, which is an extraordinary thing to understand, and it's based on a 1914 photograph um, and he's standing next to a European missionary who was his friend yeah and you see them both in this statue and you'll see actually his hat he's moved it kind of to the side in order to really amplify the hat so it looks even bigger and you know very sadly he was killed by the colonial police for fighting for equality um, but this captures his story you know and in a moment where we're looking to redress diversity in the public realm this is a really, really powerful story that people need to know about. And, and then you've got Goshka Masuga, who's done this sort of space age, but it feels a bit sort of retro space age. The rocket seems really particular to me. It looks like a 60s rocket or a rocket from a different era, an era where we were projecting our ideas onto the space race and, and everything that that represented. So tell us a bit more about that one. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the rocket is, it will be massive. You know, it's really big. And I think the artist is talked about as kind of, you know, look into the skies, look into space again to gain some perspective on our lives today, you know, and that is an idea that resonates today more than, more than ever, really. And Nicole Eisenman has gone, in a way, into the sort of intimacy of the bedroom as a means of commenting on a very broad range of issues, right? So it looks like a jewellery stand, but it has all sorts of other things which indicate all sorts of uh, social political issues. Yeah, I mean, it's using this kind of idea of a jewellery tree, something that you might just see on your dressing table. And so it is this mix of kind of, you know, sentimental things, precious things, but also the everyday things. So you'll see a kind of used coffee cup as well as a medal, you know, and it's this idea of making that kind of everyday monumental, I think. But again, there's all of them riffing off Trafalgar Square and the heritage in the square, you know, and that's what's great about the site-specific nature of the fourth plinth. And we were talking a bit about sort of the space race and sort of ideas of modern futures. And then we've got this sort of monument to failed modernism, and yet this sort of, it has an organic element, which is Ibrahim Mahama's work. Tell us about that. So it's a grain silo, and they were commissioned in the 1960s, and they never really got to fulfil their true potential, their intended function, because the president was very quickly overthrown in the 60s. Um, and so they were left. So these kind of incredible brutalist structures kind of are all around the country. And what you can see is how the ecosystem has grown around them. So the artist has been to visit lots of them. 
and you know says that they've kind of got plant life there's bats there's frogs there's birds you know um, and I think again there's something about the pandemic there isn't there where humans have kind of retreated from the urban space and animals and plants have kind of taken over we've all watched kind of YouTube videos of penguins wandering across the high street, haven't we? You know, so there's again, there's a kind of resonance there, right? And I, I wanted to ask you a bit about London and how it fits in with the wider culture in terms of the debate about public monuments at the moment. Do you feel, as, as a commissioning body, that you can take a kind of progressive stand on this issue in a way when when the government is taking a deeply conservative stand on it? I think the fourth plinth, you know, has always been thought-provoking. You know, the artists have never shied away of kind of exploring interesting, difficult, provocative, celebratory, all kinds of issues, you know. Um, And that is what is brilliant about it. I think, you know, for me, it feels like a really bold and confident move for London as a world-class city to, you know, have been commissioning you know, thought-provoking, progressive, brilliant contemporary art in the heart of this grade one listed heritage space for two decades. It's bold and it's, it says how confident we are as, a, as an international, diverse, creative city. And it's more important than ever. Justine, thank you very much. Thank you very much. The fourth plinth proposals are at the National Gallery in London until the 4th of July. You can see the designs online at london.gov.uk slash fourth plinth and also vote for your favourite. The winners are announced in late June. And you can hear interviews with the two most recent artists to win the commission, Michael Rakovitz and Heather Philipson, on this podcast. Heather, whose work The End is currently on the plinth, was on the podcast a couple of weeks ago on May the 14th. And I interviewed Michael about his work for the plinth on the 22nd of March 2018. And finally, it's time for the work of the week. Nike Air Force One sneakers, or trainers as many of us in the UK call them, are among the designs explored in Sneakers Unboxed, Studio to Street, an exhibition now at the Design Museum in London. Ligaya Salazar, the exhibition's curator, told me about this particular design and why it's much more than just a pair of shoes. Ligaya, we're going to talk about Nike Air Force One trainers. Tell us about them. Well, Nike Air Force Ones are probably the most recognisable pair of trainers or sneakers or crepes or however you want to call them uh, <laughs> globally so um and what's interesting about them is that they have become such a kind of cult item merely on their own merely because people really love them so there was never really much of advertising behind them so which is why what makes them so special they were designed specifically for basketball players, right? So, that, so that they, it was, this was in 1982. And, and at that point, Nike was much more of a kind of running company, I read. Indeed, yes. Nike wasn't really much of a big player in the basketball scene at the time uh, or really in the sportswear market. I think Adidas and Puma and even Reebok were much bigger at that point. So... The Air Force One was their first basketball trainer, but it was their first basketball trainer to feature their very famous air midsole cushioning. Can you say something about the air element? Because we now know that so many of their trainers have the word air in them. What does it mean? This actually was a, an invention by a uh, an engineer called uh, Marion Rudy, who invented these kind of these basically filled air filled bubbles, and reportedly took them to Adidas first, and they said no. 
and then took it to Nike, but this could be an urban myth also. So, But then Nike started in uh, introducing them into their running shoes in the late 70s. And they obviously are there to help cushion the blow as you're running. And uh, in the case of the basketball trainers, obviously, whilst you're playing basketball and it's quite um, demanding on your feet. So it's quite a big advancement for that shoe at the time. Right. Uh, tell us about the design. You know, this is a design museum show. What's particular about the design of the Air Force One? I think it's interesting because it's, it, it, the way the Air Force One started in 1982 isn't how we know it now. So there has been a development in the sense that it's become this ubiquitous white canvas that has been versioned over 2000 times, apparently. But the beginnings of it sit very much in basketball. And basketball is probably at the root of most of what we understand as sneaker culture now, because the relationship between basketball, streetball and hip hop was such a close one. And I guess the first Air Force One in 1982 was a high top trainer that was promoted by basketball players. But really, what was interesting about it is, is less, almost less the design, but more its, its cultural story and its cultural significance. But in terms of design, there was not just the air uh, midsole, there was a new type of uh, kind of sole pattern that would help pivot better when you're, when you're playing basketball. It had a Velcro around the, the high top, so that gives you more stability and that kind of variable lacing system that also kind of allowed you to to adjust to the width of your, your, your feet. So in terms of functionality, those were the innovations, but um, it was really its popularity on, on the streets that made them what they are today and then became later on the kind of low top version, which we're more familiar with. That's right. So tell us about that cultural influence, because they became known as Uptowns quite quickly, didn't they? They did, they did. And I think that's mainly to do with the fact that uh, they were mostly seen on high rollers on Harlem streets uh, in, in New York. But it, it, they were also very popular uh, across other parts of the, the East Coast, in particular Philadelphia, because one of the basketball players that promoted it, Karl Malone, was uh, actually played in for the Philadelphia 76ers and they won the, the championship in 1982. So it became quite a cult shoe. So like every shoe at that time, and probably still to a degree, it was on the shelf for a year and then Nike was going to move on and put their next innovation on the shelf. And it was really three retailers in Baltimore that made the difference. They, they'd been asked by, by, by customers over and over again whether they would still sell the Air Force One, still sell the Air Force One. And obviously they, they weren't being supplied by them, by Nike anymore at that point. So they decided to go to Nike headquarters and ask for the re-release. So they're the first re-released sneakers, which to us is quite normal that there's retro sneakers. And But at the time, you were just being given the next innovation and it wasn't an old sneaker that you would be, unless they were still you know, left over and hadn't been sold the, the season before. So it was a really huge thing. And Nike at the time asked them to, to order, I think 1,200 of every color that they would, wanted to order which is a huge amount if you think about the limited editions that are uh, that are being sold at the moment. But they sold out immediately and they introduced this initiative called Color of the Month, which basically meant that lots of people would come to Baltimore to try and cop a pair, as they say. So, yeah, it was really uh, uh, the first retro and the first culturally demanded sneaker there was. And part of that is, as you said, you mentioned hip hop earlier on, because they are absolutely synonymous with hip hop culture, aren't they? 
They are, they are. And that, that comes a bit later, I think, in a, in a way at the beginning, they are very much in, you know, interwoven with, with what people wear on the street, with people who are, you know, playing basketball potentially, but also you know, doing whatever they're doing. Not necessarily so connected to hip hop as at the time, it was really added as superstars that were super connected to hip hop. But it was later in the 90s when uh, Nike released the low top model, which I already said is, is what we're probably most more familiar with. And it, it kind of gets connected to, to rappers like Jay-Z and then later on Nelly in, in the early 2000s releases a, a song called Air, Air Force One. So it kind of becomes intrinsically linked. But I guess what's also really important is that that particular version of it is comes out in this kind of very clean white, fully white trainer which is synonymous with having a fresh pair of, of sneakers on your feet. Whereas the original version was, was white, but had a gray, had gray accents to it. So it wasn't really such a, so much what we, we now know and not so much of a, I guess the best sneakers or the most recognizable sneakers are blank canvases for, for people who want to customize them for then later on collaborations, et cetera, et cetera. So that's really when the low top comes in, that's that's when it all changes a little bit. You mentioned the Nelly tune, and there was also, of course, like on the 25th anniversary, that there's that. I I, I knew this tune. I didn't know, <laughs> actually, didn't know it was about Air Force Ones. That just goes to show. But um, but this tune called Classic, Better Than I've Ever Been, which is actually a collaboration between Rakim and Kanye and Nas and and KRS One. So like these classics of different eras, I guess, of 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 hip hop. These great artists from that from from that culture. So it's sort of again it's, it, to the extent that. It was commissioned by Nike. Effectively, it's, it's it, it, you know this this direct connection between the pr- the product itself and and the culture. Yeah, but it also an incredibly good marketing company. So I think I think there's at at that point that's when when you know you really recognize the power that Nike puts into what originally wasn't advertised so much and really came from the culture. But then as they recognize the profitability and the the desirability by attaching themselves to 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 the culture it they're definitely right on that and that's obviously shown by the fact that they commission artists to to do a song about the trainer which obviously has a place in the culture but it's also then amplified by those initiatives does sneaker culture have kind of heroes in the sense of the designers this particular trainer was designed by a guy called bruce kilgore and i read that within the sort of trainer designers he's very well known but is it you know do you do you have kind of iconic designers in that field yeah you do you do and i think hopefully uh there's going to be more iconic uh, sneaker designers who are from a wider spectrum of backgrounds than they originally were there's more women in the field now more people of color but Originally, there's, you know, there's Bruce Kilgore is a big name. Stephen Smith is a big name. And then obviously Tinker, Tinker Hatfield is probably the biggest name in that field. And he's the one who designs uh, the Jordan 3, the Air Max 1. So all, like design classics effectively for Nike. But there's, there's a lot of lesser known designers who've done incredible uh, innovations, such as the, like the Reebok Instapump and... You know, there's there's people behind the scenes that that have done incredible work there. But yeah, I I guess the key ones are yeah, Tinker Hatfield, Bruce Kilgore, Stephen Smith. I read that a pair of the Air Force One trainers sold at auction in March, in fact, of this year for eighty eight thousand dollars. It was actually a pair that was had been designed 
bespoke for the TV series Entourage. It was invented by for a, like a kind of fictional artist's design, effectively. Um, this artist called Fukuyama. Obviously, again, connected to a successful series. Again, there's sort of all sorts of cultural references that come into play. But yeah, it sold at Sotheby's for $88,000. Can you say something about that aspect? Because it's become quite significant in recent years, hasn't it? These objects selling for huge prices at auction. That's crazy. But yeah, it's it, as you say, it's very, it's very much um, becoming more and more common these prices are achieved for either they're quite often they're player samples actually that are you know have been worn by Kobe Bryant or Michael Jordan or other athletes I guess really truly in the last decade been more and more popular so the one that is probably the most uh, valuable one is a, a friends and family edition which is which means it's not publicly available just gets given away to whoever uh, is friends and family of the creator and it's a PlayStation Air Force One that was just given to PlayStation employees when the PlayStation 3 was um, and some footballers probably when the PlayStation 3 was uh, released so it's those kinds of um, it's almost it's kind of strange because they're kind of it's artificially created desire and uh, also the fact that there's so few of them so it's an interesting phenomenon but it just continues to go and go and go. It's not something that's stoppable because it just works. Last question. In terms of museums, obviously you've got a show which is all about sneaker phenomenon. Are museums now very much collecting these objects? And are they, you know, do they have the same sort of currency as we might have valued forms of like, for instance, haute couture in the olden days? You know, is, is in, in other words... Do sneakers have a sort of currency as a museum object that we previously bestowed on things which would have had a much more kind of uh, historic significance in terms of design? It's very hard to keep sneakers. Uh, they're not really made to last. And they, uh, because of the various innovative materials that are in them, they tend to be very, they get very fragile and brittle very quickly, especially since the late 80s. So yes, there are uh, museum objects and there's museums that keep them, including uh, the Northampton Shoe Museum, which has a great collection of sneakers, um, but they're very hard to keep. And I guess in, to, to answer your question around the value or, of them in terms of a museum collection, I guess they are the couture of our time in a, in, in a weird way. I, I'm sure that lots of my uh, fashion curator uh, colleagues would be horrified by the sentence, but they take the place of identity and signifying identity. So in, in that way, they are a little bit like uh, high fashion was in the sense that you, you signify who you are and what status you are in, in society by the type of sneaker you wear. Ligaya, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Pleasure. Sneakers Unboxed Studio to Street continues at the Design Museum in London until the 24th of October. And that's all for this episode. You can subscribe to the art newspaper at theartnewspaper.com. Click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page and you'll find a range of subscriptions. And do subscribe to this podcast and a brush with if you haven't already done so. And please give us a rating or review if you've enjoyed it. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julia Michalska, Amy Dawson and David Clack. David is also the editor and sound designer. Thanks also to Henrietta Bentel and Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Martin, Echo Justine and Ligaya. Thank you for listening. See you next week when we'll be looking at the Roman Emperor Nero. Bye for now. 
The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.